So a couple of years ago, I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine. Now, this was a, a friend who had grown up in the church, had been hurt by the church, and for many, many years was not a Christian. And so I, I'm sure I didn't say all the right things, but one thing that I made sure to say was, you know, the church only exists to keep people close to Jesus. The response that I heard was, which Jesus? And that question kind of caught me off guard a little bit. It rattled around in my head for a little while after that. And honestly, sometimes it still does. Who is Jesus? Maybe we don't think about our answer to that question all that often because everybody knows who Jesus is, right? But you get the thought behind the question. It's not up for debate who Jesus is, but when we use the name of Jesus, what, what set of beliefs are we representing? You know, you could, you could walk down the street and you could ask every person you pass, who is Jesus? And you might not get the same answer twice. So here we are in 2023, and we're asking the same question that those crowds were on that first Palm Sunday. We're looking at Jesus, and we're wondering, who is this? Now, those people that were there on that first Palm Sunday, they were asking that question as they saw Jesus treated like royalty. I mean, this was the, the full royal treatment that Jesus was getting. This was the red carpet treatment. And so maybe it was asked by some in a dismissive way. Maybe there were some, some grumpy old guys there going, you know, who is this? He can't be that famous if I've never heard of him before. Or maybe it was said excitedly, you know, I didn't, I didn't know there was a celebrity coming to town. Who is this? But either way, I'm guessing the question was asked quite a bit. Who is this guy that we're giving this, this treatment to? And if you just went by what you saw, if you just went by what you could observe in front of you, you'd probably say, must be a king. He, he acts like a king. People are treating him like a king. He must be a king. Who is this? It's our king. So we'll give him the full kingly treatment. We'll, we'll wave those palm branches in that, that symbol of victory like people do when their king returns from battle. And we'll shout that word of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it's almost like we're living in that, in those old stories that we've heard from generations past, from when the people of Israel weren't ruled by anyone, when we had our own king. I mean, we've all heard of the, the glories of the reign of the great King David. And maybe this Jesus is going to bring us back to that. Maybe he's going to be our king, and maybe he's going to save us from what we all want so desperately. Maybe he's going to save us from the oppression of the Romans. Now, we just read it a few moments ago. These events kept a prophecy from the Old Testament. See, your king comes to you, humble and riding on a donkey. It's hard to say that the people were wrong, to treat Jesus like their king, right? And if we're being honest, I, I like thinking about Jesus as my king. We just sang it in Crown Him With Many Crowns. Crown Him With Many Crowns, for He is King of All, we said. And it, it almost gets you fired up a little bit, like, all right, let's go. 
We're following Jesus. He's our fearless leader. He's going to lead us to victory. As long as we've got King Jesus on our side, we're going to win. Only I wonder, what is it that we often want Jesus to conquer for us? We're so quick to point out that the, the Jewish people who were there on that first Palm Sunday, they had it so wrong because all they wanted Jesus to do was to win political victories for them. Are we really all that different? There's, there's that age-old phrase of WWJD, what would Jesus do? I think very often we answer that question with what we would want Jesus to do. You know, I think Jesus would would come back and he would, he would change all the people in this world that have it so wrong. Or Jesus is, is going to come and fix this world that has just gotten so, so evil. Or maybe it's a little more personal. Maybe we think, you know, if I follow Jesus, he's going to lead me to success and happiness, and my life is just going to be better if I'm a Christian. I mean, I deserve some sort of reward for that, don't I? The more we read the Bible, I think we kind of realize people never really knew what Jesus was going to do. In fact, a lot of times Jesus does the exact opposite of what people think he should do. Maybe that should be a, a lesson for us too, huh? That About the kind of king that Jesus is and about how he rules in his kingdom. Just a few days after these events on Palm Sunday, Jesus is on trial, and he's asked point blank, are you a king? And Jesus' answer to that question is basically, you don't get it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, which I think we all probably need that rebuke and that reminder once in a while. When we're looking at the, the headlines saying, Jesus, I thought you were supposed to be in charge here. What are you letting this world turn into? Or when our prayers day after day sound something like, God, why isn't my life going the way I'd always hoped it would? Jesus says, hey, remember, my kingdom is not of this world. The answer to the frustrations of this kingdom is to shift our focus on to Jesus' kingdom. Now, I don't want to make it seem like Jesus doesn't care about our physical life here on earth. He does. He cares about it deeply. But he also wants us to see the big picture and to remember the place that we have in his kingdom and that he is the mightiest of mighty kings. And he is a king who conquers. And yet Jesus does not conquer by shedding the blood of his enemies. Jesus is that one-of-a-kind king who conquers by shedding his own blood. And so now on that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was not the kind of king that people were looking for. And yet, if they had really understood the kind of king that Jesus really was, I think they would have sung his praises even louder. Because every other king that's ever lived sends his subjects off to fight for him and to die for their king, right? Jesus 
is the only king who dies for his subjects. Jesus is a one-of-a-kind king because he's a self-sacrificing king. Now, Palm Sunday was far from the first time that people saw Jesus doing something and wanted to know, hey, who is this guy? Happened, happened a whole bunch, but one time that really sticks out in my mind is his disciples asked that question. These were the people who knew Jesus the very best. They were the people who were with him all the time. And yet they saw a stormy sea go calm just at Jesus' command, and they're in awe. And they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Thing is, the disciples really should have known the answer to that question. A couple of years before that, some of them were there. When John the Baptist, the one who came to pave the way for Jesus, he pointed at Jesus and he announced exactly who Jesus was. Only John didn't say, look, there's your king, go bow down. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lamb of God, that's kind of a, an interesting title. Oddly enough, you hear a lot about sheep in the Bible. Sheep are some pretty central characters in the Bible, but they were pretty central creatures in life at that time. And lambs in particular were extra meaningful in that, that Jewish and Israelite culture. And to really understand why, we've got to rewind quite a bit. We've got to go back 1,500 years before Jesus lived. And we already talked about how during the time of Jesus, the people were under control of the Romans. But 1,500 years earlier, they had it way, way worse. They were enslaved in Egypt. And the leader of the Israelites at that time was Moses. And God used Moses. He spoke through Moses. He sent Moses to the Pharaoh of Egypt with a simple message. Let my people go. And maybe you're familiar with how the events then play out after that. The Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses. He won't do it. And every time that he refuses, God sends a plague on the land of Egypt. And they start small, and they get progressively worse and worse. And after nine of those plagues, Pharaoh still won't budge. And so the tenth plague is the big one. And God tells Moses that the tenth plague is going to kill all of the firstborns living in the land of Egypt. But the Israelites will be spared if they show their faith in God in this way. God told each family to take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, not the, not the little sickly one, but the strongest and the healthiest lamb, and they were to slaughter that lamb, cook and eat the meat, and they were to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the door frames of their houses. And so that, that plague on the firstborn passed over every Israelite house. And that plague can finally convince the Pharaoh to set the people free. They were no longer slaves. They were delivered. They were rescued. And so every year after that, every year for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people would celebrate that deliverance. They would celebrate the Passover. And they would eat that same meal that the people had eaten, a perfect one-year-old lamb. It was that very celebration 
the Passover that brought all those people, all those crowds to Jerusalem in the first place on Palm Sunday. That's why all those people were there. They were there to go to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate God's deliverance, to celebrate the Passover as their ancestors had for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as it would happen, it was that very day, that Sunday, that each family was supposed to select that special animal. They were supposed to select their Passover lamb. But little did all these people know this would be the last time. The last time to celebrate that Passover as they had for so long. Because on that Palm Sunday, the true Passover lamb rode into Jerusalem. And this was the one whom those year after year after year traditions had always pointed ahead to. That Passover celebration had always pointed ahead and said, look, look not at that perfect one-year-old lamb, but look ahead to the perfect lamb of God. It wasn't the blood of a lamb that saved the Israelites in Egypt. It was God who saved and delivered his people. And it was that very same God who decided to become a sacrifice to save you. Jesus became your Passover lamb to deliver you, not from, not from earthly oppression and not from earthly hardships, but Jesus became your Passover lamb to deliver you from the death grip that sin has on your life. The blood of the Lamb of God delivers you from the fear of death, the fear of hell. Who is this? This is your Passover lamb. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think we are very often guilty of of seeing people for who we want them to be rather than who they actually are. You know, it's always a a crushing day when you find out your childhood hero is a a sinful human being just like you, and they, they make mistakes, and maybe they end up in the news headlines or something like that. But we, we're guilty of that, aren't we? We see people for what we want them to be, and we miss who they really are. And so who really is Jesus? Is he, is he a king? Is he a lamb? Is he the ruler? Is he the sacrifice? Or is he just a man? Because there's an awful lot of people that choose that option. But this is where we can't let our own ideas about Jesus cloud our vision of who he is. And we can't let appearances deceive us. And honestly, we should probably just stop looking altogether and just listen. Just listen to what God says about Jesus in his word. In the book of Revelation, God gives us a sneak peek into what heaven is like. And Jesus is right in the middle of this picture. Listen to what God says about who this is. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As we celebrate five years of ministry here at Light of the Valleys, let's remember why we are here in the first place. It's not just for the friendships as enriching to our lives as they might be. It's not just to feel uplifted when you're feeling down, even though the gospel so often does have that effect on us. It's not just to form a sense of community. We're not here to push an agenda on people. We're not here to change the world one little piece at a time. We're not here to be rewarded for being good Christians. We are here, and this church exists, because people so desperately need to know the answer to this question. And by God's grace, we have the answer. By God's grace, we know how to answer that question for people. Who is this? Let me tell you all about him. This is how God shows you what he's really like. This is how God answers all of the questions that you've always had. This is how God proves to you how valuable you are to him. This is how God shows you that God is love. This is Jesus. This is your king who set down the crown of heaven to wear a crown of thorns for you. This is your Passover lamb whose blood washes away all sin for you. This is your savior who answers your cries of, of Hosanna, Lord, save us by opening wide the gates of heaven for you. Amen. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand. We'll continue.